This episode of The Candor Frame is sponsored by Charcoal Book Club. The Charcoal Book Club is the monthly subscription service for photo book enthusiasts. Working with the most respected names in contemporary photography, Charcoal selects and delivers essential photo books to a worldwide community of collectors. Each month, members receive a signed first edition monograph and an exclusive print to add to their collections. Join the club by visiting charcoalbookclub.com and use the promo code THECANDERFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. When we think of home, we are often thinking of family and community. It's a place that hopefully provides security and stability. However, the degree of those things looks very different depending on many factors, including location, culture, race, and sex. It's easy to forget that the promise of that security is shaped by politics, class, and power. It's not always just an innocent dream to aspire to. Alejandro Cartagena has spent years focusing on the complexities of urbanization and home ownership, especially in Monterrey, Mexico, where he lives. But the ideas and themes that he explores in his photographs can be found in Central, South, and North America. His latest book, A Small Guide to Home Ownership, compiles several of his personal projects and presents it in a unique book design that showcases his work with a sense of humor and irony. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. So how are you doing? Good. Um, it's been a, an interesting week. Lots of work. You know, happy. Listening to a lot of stoic philosophy ideas to kind of rebalance myself. <laughs> I think I was just telling my, my girlfriend that I need to listen to these ideas every certain amount of time because I forget that I know how to live or, try, or I've lived that way. And so I try, I problems pile up, pile up. And then you, you just look at the problem and you don't think of yourself and it just becomes a big mess. So what are your, what are your go-tos? Are there certain authors that you read? Um, Seneca, Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, their ideas mainly are the ones that, you know, inspire calmness. And I mean, the main, the main thing I go to is the idea that, it's not the problem that's the problem is how you think of the problem that's the problem so i mean it sounds so simple and and, in in your face but to live a life like that is it takes you know you, you need to constantly be reminding yourself that that's the best that's one of the best ways to think of uh the things that are happening and i was also telling her how You know, we've been with this whole pandemic thing, we've been thinking, oh, we should, you know, strive to be debt free and try to have the most simple life possible. Mm -hmm. And I was just telling her that, you know what, I think that we were going the wrong way because it's also really important to be in trouble and to test yourself because there you find things that you would never find if you're just living a simple life nothing happens in your life life you know so it's a balance it's not like let's live in chaos to see how far we can go and how better we can get but it's not bad to have situations that push the limit of who you think you are 
and and how you think you are in this life. So yeah, that's what I've been. No, no, that's 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 something I'm 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 also, you know, trying to practice in my own my own life. The idea that nothing is permanent. Yeah. Both things that are good and they're bad. Yeah. And that it's really um, the choice I make of how I react to to all the circumstances in my life. That's that's on you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I think I've gotten better with respect to handling difficult and painful moments. Mm. I think the the struggle is is how I appreciate and enjoy the good moments. Yeah, or the moments when I do have an opportunity for serenity. Okay, because yeah. that is not a default mode for me. Okay, right. <laughs> it's always about sort of I'm in the midst of chaos. Okay, and struggling with it or anticipating it. Oh, see, see, that's. I, I I had a divorce three years ago, and mm-hmm. and through psychoanalysis and reading a lot of uh, philosophy, Stoic philosophy, I came to the I, I saw myself caught up in this paradigm about trying to predict the way I I want things to happen and working mm-hmm. so much for things to happen that way that. I wasn't, I didn't have a pause in life to live life. Yes. Yes. It's Um, always about, okay, am I going to do X, Y, Z to make things go as smooth as possible? And in doing that X, Y, Z, you miss out that opportunity of living that moment because you're anticipating what you're going to live tomorrow. You don't even know if you're going to wake up tomorrow and you're spending time mm -hmm. trying to fix how tomorrow's going to be. And that was my life pre-divorce. And I, like, after the divorce and and through the therapy, I, you know, I came to a realization that, of course, it's, I mean, really uncomfortable and unbearable to live with somebody who's always, you know, anticipating their life, you know? It's like, mm-hmm. oh, we're going to drive to someplace. Okay, what route are we going to take? Are we going to go here, here, here? How much time is that going to take? And, and yeah, so I thank my, my ex-wife, that's now my girlfriend, uh, <laughs> for <laughs> leaving me and then, uh, and then, you know, showing me that I was a, a pain in the ass. <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's good. I'm glad you were able to work it out with her and, yeah. and to be changed as, as a result. I, yeah. I find that a lot of the problems that I used to think I had with my marriage mm. was actually a lot of issues with me. Mm. You know, and it's and it's been a real gift to to come to that aw- uh, awareness, of course, and to recognize that it involves a lot of work and dedication. Yes, to be able to remain focused on myself and my choices and my reactions. Yeah, like one of the I things mean, I, I I write daily in a journal, mm-hmm. which is really more sort of a vomiting how I'm feeling and how I'm thinking. And yeah. one of the things I wrote about this past week is that I I measure my life too much by what I'm checked off my to-do list mm. you know because like you i'm yeah. incredibly busy i've always got all these things going on and so, yeah. and when my wife asked me how was your day i go i got a lot accomplished and <laughs> and i and i recognize and i recognize that that is probably a distorted way of being able of looking at measuring my day That's- that I, I go you know i'm missing you know the joy of just having lived that day and, and taking pleasure of yeah. something. And I find that when I'm making photographs, I'm in that space. Okay, that's it's great. It's easy for me to get in my space. So that is sort of my, that's my meditative practice to a degree. Mm. It's like I, I, 
I need to find ways of being able to experience that without a camera. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I, again, uh, the pain brings balance because you know when you don't have pain and you feel that, oh my God, I, I'm not in pain. I, I mm-hmm. like, I'm fine, you know, I'm, I'm here. But for me, it was that breakup, that, that massive amount of pain that made me understand that I have to live and I have to work. Before, before my divorce, it, everything was work. Everything, you know, from, yeah. from, from when I woke up to, to when I went to sleep. And discovering that there is so much to learn about being a person that, it, it, I mean, again, it sounds so simple, but we don't get told these things. We, we don't go, uh, there's, this, uh, there's this page or group of uh, psychologists and philosophers called the School of Life. Mm-hmm. And they talk about this. There is no school of life. There is no, there has not, you have, you don't go to school to be taught how to be a, a father, a son, uh, a husband, uh, a friend, how to deal with a breakup, how to deal with uh, success, how to deal with failure. And these are things that this is what make, we are, a, we are a person. We need to to have a, like a, a sense of orientation into how to act uh, when things like that happen in front of us. And the, for me, what I figured out is that we are set, we are set with all these paradigms, cultural paradigms, family paradigms that tell us how to act in front of things, how to be a father, mm-hmm. how to be a son comes from our culture, from, you know, being Mexican, Dominican, or American, wherever you're from, and then your family culture, how uh, your family has dealt with the idea of how to be a father and how to be a son. So you're just acting out those paradigms. And you really need to work yourself to see yourself in that paradigm. And those are things that you don't decide, you just start acting them out because you don't have any other reference. And so that's why it's so important to read philosophy, philosophy and think of yourself from another perspective so that mm-hmm. you can maybe question your own paradigm and, and see if, if maybe that paradigm doesn't really suit who you are. And you can, you can never leave a paradigm. You can just yeah. maybe decide, okay, maybe I'm going to go into this one now. You know, it, it suits me better. There's not a constant conflict in my mind. Uh, by the way I'm, I'm, I'm being. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a never ending uh, path of discovery life. <laughs> so, uh, so how did you find that this awareness sort of changed the way that you work? Hmm. Basically what, what I, what I came to was that I needed to separate life from work. That made me feel much looser with my work and made me, question what I was doing and why I was doing it. And it shows in what I've been doing the, the past three years. I've done installation, I've done uh, collages, I've, I've started to do paintings, drawings. Uh, and those are things that I would never go that way because I was so fixed in doing what I, I knew how to do. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, I've, I've heard people... Uh, say 
as long as you're working, you're going to get somewhere. And, and I, I do believe in that. But then there is so much more to just working. And, and, and what I feel I'm doing now is I'm, you know, just being, you know, if, if like we just finished uh, 12 pieces that involve resin and collage and I was so excited to see them. It's like, wow, I, you know, I've been doing photography for 16 years and I never thought I would do this, that it's in front of me. It, it sounds to me, and you can tell me if, if I'm wrong, but that you rediscovered how to play as opposed to just working. Yeah, I, I yes, I, it, that's part of it. Because, you know, being a photographer, from the outside, you may think, oh, it's just fun. You're being a photographer. No, it's work, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. And there comes a moment when you want to play again and not just work. So, yeah, this it's it's been a, a, a path to new ways in how to enjoy playing and and you know get you remember that feeling of discovering how to do a correct exposure or how to do an overexposure you know that that for those first moments of learning the photographic language and understanding speed and it's like oh my god i can make reality look this way if i do yeah. this technical things i think i'm i'm at that moment and i don't know what I'm doing. I mean, I don't know if it's even photography. It's based on photography. Um, and, and with, and, and based in all the things I know about photography, but I'm willing to risk it to, to see where it goes. And yeah, it's, it's fun. It's fun. Yeah. I can see that in uh, that sort of playfulness in, in your very early work, like yeah. the self portraiture yeah. that you were doing, Exactly. you know, that you were just <laughs> sort of experimenting and just taking risks and, yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I can understand, understand at some point when, when you achieve some level of success that you end up sort of spend a lot of attention sustaining that success mm -hmm. and building on it and working towards yeah. something. So yeah. when, when you were in the midst of it before you had this sort of uh, epiphany of rediscovery, yeah. what were you working so hard for? Did you even have a, an idea? <sighs> I think I was more practical than anything, you know. I do, I do believe that everything that I was doing, all the projects, all the, all the things that I was photographing always have had to do with the things that I feel uh, affect me as a citizen or, or mm -hmm. as a human being. So I can't, that's inevitable for me. It's, it's like most of the work that I've done has to do with that. And one of the things that I'm most is a citizen. I live in a city. I live downtown. Things happen around me. I, I see the changes that happen around me. And I am hyper aware because I'm not from here. And so everything is constructed. There's no reality. This is like, oh, they've decided to do a city this way. But I come from another city that's a completely different city. And mm -hmm. there are completely different decisions to make that other city. So... That kind of made me aware of this cultural construct that we live in. And I think that was always there, but then it was all practical. It was, you know, okay, I see that. Okay, I'm going to go photograph it. Oh, I see that other thing. I'm going to go photograph it. And not that there wasn't pleasure in that. There was because sometimes mm -hmm. there were things that I was photographing that uh, because of the empirical knowledge that you gain through photographing one thing over and over and, and over again, 
sometimes you start seeing things that you yourself hadn't seen before, even though you're, you are aware. So I don't know, there was still pleasure in the practical uh, way of or schematical way of, of producing that I was engaged with. And there was some experimentation in, in and I've talked about this before. It, for me, the, the collision between different ideas placed together in a, in a body of work, that for me is poetic uh, documentary in that, like for the Suburbia Mexicana project where I photographed these little houses being built outside the city of Monterey. And then another part of the project was to photograph the most wealthy part of the city that has nothing to do urban in, with urban style and urban planning. And to put those two realities next to each other as a same project and then include uh, the carpoolers images uh, between those two realities, mm -hmm. that for me was engaging. That was, that was like, um, I was always striving to find those connections, those possible connections between my projects. And that's, I think, what kept it exciting up to some moment. And it still is, it, it, to think of that is exciting. But now I'm, I'm playing, like you said, I'm yeah. playing a little bit more and, and risking it, you know, um, not because uh, I can, it's m more mainly because I want to, because you know, mm -hmm. yeah, I, 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 I want to do it. Uh, you were born in the uh, Dominican Republic. Yeah. And then you moved to Mexico, Monterey, when mm -hmm. you were about 14. Yeah. The cultures are very different, even though they share a language, relatively. Yeah. Relatively, <laughs> yes. <laughs> How was that experience, the fact that you came from a different culture, different sensibility, how has that helped you in, in terms of how you look at the city, the country, the culture in Mexico? I mean, it was a shock at, at the beginning. I mean, my mom is Mexican, so I, I was you know, imbued with a little bit of Mexican culture, but still to actually live it and go to school, have, have friends and talk differently and dance differently <laughs> and flavor life differently. It was, it was a shock. You know, I was a weird kid who talked differently and said words that nobody uses here in Mexico. Uh, que vaina, coño, you know, guagua. Guagua. my nickname <laughs> for some time was coño because that's how I express myself, you know, el coño, viene el coño. <laughs> you know, so it was un chingazo, like we say here in Mexico, you know, it was, it wasn't easy. I was a skateboarder. That was my like my creative place. Uh, I would I, I found two friends that were into skateboarding that were kind of neighbors, and we would. I started working in a skate shop, uh, and that was that was my escape. You know, going out skateboarding uh, after school in the night, and eventually, you know, I I think I I was consumed by my the culture around me. Uh, Monterey is a very industrial town, uh, a lot of businesses, a lot of money. Uh, we have one of the richest towns in Latin America here in the metro area. So there is money, money, money is, is something that's a, a big part of, uh, of the culture here. I ended up studying uh, leisure management. I mean, I was going, even though I, I, I was creative and I was 
actually studying a major in leisure management and a major in music at the same time. I ended up just working in hotels and restaurants. I, that's, that was my life prior to photography. I was 10 years in the service industry, working as a, a manager, a front desk manager, uh, a restaurant manager. I worked in McDonald's as a manager. I mean, that was my life. And then I said, one day I said, you know, I don't want this anymore. And I just let go of everything. And I started to do photography. After a workshop, I took a workshop and that workshop showed me that, you know, I asked the teacher, hey, can you live off photography? He said, yes. I'm like, okay, that's it. <laughs> I quit my job and I took a one year sabbatical and that's how I learned photography. I think what mainly made me see the, the way I see is both being an outsider of the place I live in. But the other thing is how I learned photography. And I learned photography through an archive. I, I, my first, I didn't want to do another four years of school learning photography. Mm -hmm. So yeah. the closest thing was working in a photography center in, in an archive that's a state archive here in, in Monterey. They have more than three, uh, 300,000 pieces that need to be scanned, cataloged, and described. And I got a job as a digitizer for the archive for five years. And that's how I learned photography, you know, scanning mm. historical images from the 19th century, 20th century. And it was amazing because, I mean, it, there was, I, I had the chance to, uh, to scan one photographer's whole archive. His, his family donated it was more than 60 years of photography wow. So from glass plate negatives from 1905 or six when he started up to the 1970s that he was shooting 35 millimeter. So those experiences really, really taught me on how to see the world that I was uh, brought into. So it was that combination of being an outsider and then seeing the world I'm living in, the city, from a, per, a historical perspective, that mm -hmm. collision really uh, informed the way I see my work and, and what I pursue. Uh, again, I, I don't think I knew that when I was there. Right. Uh, I was just doing my work, you know, scanning 100, 200 images a day. But in perspective, I'm like, wow, that, I mean, I, I see how influence my work is in the things I scanned over those five years. Mm -hmm. And I've actually gone back and a few of my like latest projects, I've gone back to that archive, things that I've scanned and I've done books with those images, you know, because at that moment I saw the images and I, they impacted me, but I had no idea of what I can do with those old photographs. And one of those projects is a book called uh, We Love Our Employees. And it's a bunch of parties and there are five by seven uh, negatives, beautiful, compo beautifully composed image. And there are hundreds of those pictures. And I remember I scanned them and, you know, I was like impressed uh, photographically at that time. Yeah. And it took me 10 years to go back and think, hey, can I look at those images again? I, and I asked the director if I can use them. And he's like, yeah, you can use them. I started to ask around to researchers. I ended up with this uh, researcher called Lydia. She researches Mexican in industrial history. And she saw the images and she's like, oh, those are the parties of Los Buitres. I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah, those are the parties 
where the company put spies to listen into conversations of the employee. Oh, wow. <laughs> to see who were trying to become part of a union. And if they, if they heard you through the Wittres, they would fire you. And she had letters of people wow. resigning from after those parties. And they, they were caught trying to unionize. And that company, the one who commissioned those photographs, invented a system of unions that is used all over Mexico, but it was born here in Monterey and it's called the white union. And it's a type of union that is built from within the company. So if you want to be an employee, you, you have a legal constitutional right to be a part of the union. But if mm -hmm. you want to be a part of this company, you have to be a part of the white union of the company so you can okay. go you can go bitch to the union but it's it's the company itself that's listening to you so they're they won't fight for you in the end that's amazing but your right to unionize has been taken care of right so those pictures was the start of that thing that just marked a country imagine i mean that it, it brought me chills when i when she told me that story i'm like man there how many images are just dead lying in archives yeah. waiting for somebody to look at them in another way and find the real meaning behind why they were taken mm. so so yeah wow. i mean that That's was an amazing a, story yeah <laughs> super exciting and and i mean the archive has become i've i've become a, a massive uh Uh, hoarder of old photographs and I go to flea markets and I have an assistant living in Mexico City and he goes twice a month to buy photographs at uh, flea markets, at tianguis, at uh, dumps, dump sites in Mexico City. And he sends me packages of, of, of photographs every month. Yeah, because the work that I, I that I, I was I think uh, exhibited uh, last year mm -hmm. uh, was from that series in which you take these these photographs and you excise the people yeah. from from the image from the original yeah. images, leaving just the context and sort of this exactly. empty space. So, yeah. what, what was sort of the idea that you were exploring with that? It's threefold. Uh, one, it had to do with this personal situation of you know complete change divorce, uh, being a, 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 a single parent in a way, that led me to also doubt my own photographic practice. And what did, what did I do unconsciously? Then in therapy, I figured it out. I went and I vandalized my own pictures, my own archive images. Uh, I actually started with my photographs of Suburia Mexicana. Uh, I had these 30 by 40 inch large pictures and uh, we cut them all out and started to do collages with that and uh, I did a series called uh, accumulations and after that I started to cut out the these uh, vintage prints and it was an it was an act of of faith and an, an act of doubt of the own photographic medium I was asking the question of what if the main idea of this photograph is taken out of it. What is left? What happens when you have the residue of what was originally made? Mm -hmm. uh, why these images were uh, originally made for? I did one and it didn't really, there was nothing really there, but it sat in front of me in, the, in a wall behind here for a whole year looking at me. And then I understood that there was something that made me understand 
why that picture was taken and what it's about. It was a group photograph and I didn't need to see their faces. I knew what the picture was about. Okay. Right? So that, uh, what I needed to do then was try to build these typologies or these structures or, or find images that follow the, the similar composition structure. So uh, there's, uh, there's one grouping that's called Gerber babies and it's 15 babies, 30 years apart between some of the images. And we cut their faces and suddenly they're all composed the same way. Different authors, different mm. photographic studios, different cities. And suddenly they're all this. It's almost like this is photography has been telling us this is the way. If you want to see a, a cute baby, this is the way you need to photograph yeah. them. And that's not only for commercial photography. That was also, and that was what I was questioning. That's also for documentary photography. And that's also for reportage photography. There are formulas and structures in how to compose things to make them look in a certain way. Mm -hmm. So I was questioning that. I was questioning myself. I was questioning my practice. I was question, questioning everything. And in the end, it, it's also about where these images were found. These are discarded images. They're in the trash. So for me, they are expired images. You know, the original meaning has left the yeah. building, has, has left the object, and they have become something else. And I'm basically uh, doing them a favor. You know, those people who are in those images, somebody doesn't care for them anymore. Nobody wants to see them anymore. So I just basically also take them out. And what is left is this hole that everybody relates to because that could be your grandmother, that could be your uncle, that could be your brother. You, can, you see yourself and you project yourself onto those images. And you also project the context in which those images were made, which is Latin America. And a lot of people have, has, you know, talked to me about how they, they see stories of the disappeared. You know, we have mm -hmm. such a horrible situation in Latin America of people disappearing because of political, political situation, violence. So there is a, a connection with, with that too. That wasn't the motivation of the work, but yeah. I, I am conscious that it reads that too. Though we look at most photographs today on a screen, I don't think you've fully experienced an image until it's printed on paper. I could have seen some of my images for years on a computer screen, but it's different when I hold a quality print in my hands. That tactile experience is special and allows me to take an image in in a very different way. It's what makes a great photo book so special to me. When I look through a book of one of my favorite photographers, it's an intimate experience. It's a visual dialogue between me and them as I slowly turn each page and experience their vision. It's not only a pleasure, but I learn so much from it. The photographs and the book design culminate in a photographic experience unlike any other. I am passionate about my photo book collection, and it's why I'm glad to have Charcoal Book Club as a sponsor. They understand what makes these books so special. 
and it drives them to make quality monographs accessible and affordable. Charcoal Book Club curates and offers books from great contemporary photographers. And when you become a member, each month you'll receive a copy of a new book and a collectible print to add to your collection. They offer free shipping to the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. It's subsidized elsewhere. And if you're not feeling that month's selection, that's okay. You can swap it out for a different one of similar value. Visit their website to see what they've offered in the past and what you have to look forward to in the future. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com today and remember to use the code VCANDWITFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. And thanks to the many of you who continue to support the Candid Frame financially each month. Your contributions have helped us so much over the past year during a very challenging time. It's financial contributions like yours that have allowed us to improve the show over these many years and provided me the needed time to research each guest and make each interview a very unique experience. So if you appreciate what we're doing, why not come on board as a Patreon supporter today? You can do that by contributing $5, $10, $20 or more by visiting patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame. Just $5 a month from you makes a big difference. Thank you, as always, for your support. It, yeah, it's interesting that, you know, you sort of illustrate the universal photogra- photographic language, whether you're formally trained as a photographer or not, mm-hmm. that is just sort of ubiquitous for anyone yeah. because that's, you know, you, you're, you learn how to take pictures by looking at other pictures. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, but what's interesting uh, for someone who's making their life as a photographer, having that awareness and then trying to find a way to say something unique, to say yeah. something distinctive, so how is that awareness that, that, you know, there are all these motifs and, mm-hmm. you know, tricks in order to sort of communicate in a photograph and how have you leveraged that to, you know, say something mm-hmm. personal with your, with your own work? I think it's about becoming a responsible artist, you know, knowing that, you know, that photography has tricks and it has motifs and it has certain ways to function in the world. And once you know that, and you accept that you are utilizing a language to manipulate the way that people see uh, what you're photographing, I think it takes you to another level, not of manipulation in the bad sense, but in being responsible in that, okay, I photographed this project this way, I know that people are going to respond to the, to the images this way because that's how people historically has, have responded to that type of images. So how can I take that into my benefit to create a cultural project that relates to more people? In the end, I want people to see what I'm thinking, right? Mm-hmm. So if I'm more conscious about these decisions that I'm making, I think I can make a more responsible photo book, a more responsible exhibition and, and connect with more people. And one thing that I try to do to, to make, maybe sometimes I do, I do make it happen. Sometimes it, it doesn't work, but I try to make sophisticated cultural projects by bringing in collaboration. So I have an editor that has been working with me the last 11 years. He's, he's worked in maybe 90% of my books. So there is his authorship in my books. 
And I want to share that with him because his point of view is completely different from my point of view about some of the things that, that we're editing. And that synergy and that uh, those coincidences that can happen uh, are beautiful and wouldn't have happened if I'm just by myself thinking that I'm this genius that knows absolutely everything, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And I've, uh, I, we've taken books to places that I would never have taken it if I, if I would have done the book by myself. Uh, like, uh, this, the, the series of books called Santa Barbara. I brought in, uh, Fernando is an editor there and mm, my wife, girlfriend now, Cristina is, is an editor there. Uh, it's about the American culture. She's American. She's a psychoanalyst. Fernando is a cinematographer. I'm a photographer three different visions of one place that for me uh, and what I wanted to convey in the book was that it's a, it's a place of contradictions. The United States of America is a place of contradictions. So how do I produce a book that relates to that? Well, let's edit it that way. So I would edit, I do, mm -hmm. I would edit the whole book and then Fernando would come in and edit the whole book, re-edit my, 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 my sequence. And then Christina would come in and re-edit everybody's sequence and the 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 more we went and then i would come back and so and the crazier it what it became the more sense it made of what we wanted to say so that would never happen uh if if you're not willing to you know to be vulnerable and 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 say okay i have limits of how much i can say and how much i can i can do and 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 communicate what i want to say your, your, your latest book, A Small Guide to Homeownership, mm -hmm. uh, I think is a really perfect example of that. Yeah. <laughs> because I really had no expectation when um, I placed, uh, when I got the book yeah. in terms of what it would look like. Mm. And I opened it up and it was like, it took me a moment to register what you had been doing. <laughs> and it was just like, because you have your photographs, but it's designed along the lines of... Um, uh, those dummy books exactly you yeah. know a dummy's guide to podcasting <laughs> exactly. or, or whatever or and it was like, yeah and it was just really fascinating to see because yeah. it really challenged the idea of what a monograph or a photo book yeah can or should look like exactly but talk talk to me about you know the the, the project mm -hmm. and how and you know, and the collaboration that resulted in it looking the way that it does. Yeah. Uh, well, that that book is basically like a amalgamation of 13 years of, of photographing things that have to do with home ownership without even knowing that I was doing that. Uh, but five years ago, I had an opportunity to do an exhibition in Museo de Arte Moderno in Santo Domingo. Okay. And, and I'm like, this is okay, it's a huge space that they were offering. And I'm like, what can I, what can I show? You know, I had, I had finished the Suburia Mexicana project, the carpoolers project. And then, you know, I started to, to see all the projects together. I'm like, wait a minute, this is all about, you know, the idea of home ownership, the propaganda of home ownership brought from the US into Mexico, imported, copy pasted, and all the fails uh, from that copy paste uh, mm -hmm. of, of culture from one culture to the other. And then, you know, I started to put everything together and it all made sense in, in a way. And so the, the, the book 
originated as an exhibition first. And it was, a, I mean, for me, I felt it was a really good exhibition. And then the Museum of the Americas in Washington, D.C. Uh, learned about it. And so they exhibited it too. And, and then it went to sleep. The project went to sleep. And I... I wanted to do a book because I was like, oh, it, it's such a good exhibition, but how, you know, I want to do a book with that, but it was complicated. There's so many different projects and so many different ideas. And so the, the way to cohesively put it all together, you know, it was chance or, you know, being aware that I wanted to do it, that I, I came across a guide of home ownership mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, wait a minute, here is a text that tells you from start to finish how to get a house, how, how to go through the bureaucracy, how to do everything with tax, with uh, permits, blah, 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 how to be good with your neighbors, how to, how to be happy with your house, etc. Like, what if I, you know, put my images parallel to that narrative of how to be a perfect homeowner? So that was the start of the project. And it took three years to edit with Fernando and, and I here in the studio. It was because it w- there was so much material to edit down. I mean, yeah, I, can imagine. I mean, there's 360 pages, uh, maybe one, maybe 200 images because some are double spread. But there's like 3000 images that could have, you know, from where we needed to pick from. So it was a slow process. He would, uh, he would, you know, do a sequence and then I would comment on that. But between doing a sequence and commenting, sometimes it's a month, sometimes it's two months. And there's so many chapters in the book. Uh, sometimes we would, okay, we're done with this part. Let's go to the next. And, and then we would do the next one. And then it's like, oh, but this, these design decisions kind of cripple the other design decisions from yeah. the other chapter. So, it was it was a long time, and eventually it was a, a deadline. You know, you uh, the editor the the editorial the Velvet Cell uh, said, "Okay, we're going to publish. This is when we want to publish." And so we we and it was right in the middle of the the pandemic in fe- in February March was when they told us we're going to publish in June. So you need to finish this, right? Yeah. So that really helped us to put our shit together and, and finish it up. He, the, the, Ayana, who's the owner of the Velvet Cell, had some beautiful input about some, some design things, like the double spreads. We never considered double spreads, but he felt you, that we needed to put that so that somebody, somebody who didn't know your work would see your work as work. And not just as this photographic object. So the double spread gave an opportunity to show off this aesthetic approach to the subject matter. And Mm -hmm. that created a balance of it being a photo book and not just a facsimile of a guide to homeownership, right? So it it is a photo book because there are moments where there is no text. There is no joke. You know, here is an amazing image of this situation. So I, I ne- we never saw that here in the studio, and it was up to you know the, the another editor to see that, and it really balanced the book out in the end. 
And there were so many things that were left out. I wanted to have a section with stickers. I, I've been collecting for years all the little, you know, the, the images of a house with being hold by, held by fingers or uh, a house with, a, 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 how do you say, a red ba- a bow? How do you say this? Uh, a ribbon, you know, like, a ribbon. Okay. you know, this is your new house. You know, all the, all the images of propaganda of a new house that's that are out there in the internet and and that are used to show you or you know to contaminate you with the idea that you uh, owning houses everything is beautiful right i collected all those images and i wanted to do a little sticker section where you had all these stickers of how beautiful houses with ribbons or you know a, a really happy family outside of of their house with their back facing the camera uh but in the end you know that was too much <laughs> so and, so what is the, sort of the the myth of the propaganda that you believe mm. that homeowner that's being impressed on people mm. um with respect to home ownership mainly i'm i'm talking about the idea of the imported idea of home ownership to mexico in this case where i say that it's propaganda because there's no alternative right there are many subsidies to buying a house, but there is no subsidy to renting a house as a family, a working family. There is only a program to help you own a house. There is no program to help you be a renter, mm-hmm. right? And we are a poor country. Mexico is a poor country and not everybody can be a homeowner. And that's the reality of the, the economic reality of this country. And instead of balancing the situation, they pushed everybody to being a homeowner. And that created a big crisis in Mexico. Uh, it's creating a crisis of traffic. It's creating a crisis of pollution. It's a cri- creating a crisis of violence because a lot of at the beginning of the of the housing boom in the 2000s, a lot of the cartels moved into these suburbs because policing was so slim compared to the amount of people living in these new suburbs. They build them so fast. Uh, one of the ones that I photographed the most is Juarez, which is like an hour from here. In the beginning of the 2000s, there were six, 60,000 people in one of the suburbs. By the time I was photographing, six years later, there were more than 350,000 wow. with the same amount of police. So that tells you that that just creates a big issue for violence, right? Mm-hmm. And for crime. And that, that particular suburb, that's where my mom was born. Or it's, it's a suburb. It used to be a small town. It became a suburb. And uh, we had a restaurant, uh, a family restaurant there. We had to close it down because we were being bribed by the cartels to operate. And it became unbearable for my family and we had to shut it down. And my parents went into lockdown for three months, not answering a phone call because they were being uh, uh, looked out uh, or, or being, how do you say that? I mean, harassed, harassed by the yeah. cartels. So, I mean, it was, it was crazy. After those three months, all the police from that suburb were put in jail because they were part of the, a cartel. And the whole suburb, the 300,000 people were being policed by the military because there was no police. There was, they had to rehire a whole new police uh, system to, to p- police the suburb. So, and that's one of many suburbs 
and yeah. many places here in Mexico that had that happen. So that I feel is one of the consequences of homeownership as propaganda, as only thinking of one way. Because if you think of renting as an alternative and subsidizing rent, there are so many places here in downtown that are for rent and nobody's using them. And they're prime real estate and prime for a lot of people who work downtown, but live in the suburbs and are contaminating, driving an hour, an hour and a half to come to work downtown. So, you know, there are ways to better everybody's lives. And Monterey is one of the most contaminated, polluted cities in Latin America because of the suburbanization. Mm. It's not Mexico City. We are sometimes here in Monterey higher in pollution and in Mecas than Mexico City. Really? So, yes. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that? You know, kill, kill yourself, you know, for, you know, progress, for homeownership. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. So. Yeah. That's, that's my critique. It's not that I don't believe in homeownership. I own my house. Uh, I was lucky enough to, to, to buy a house and, and make, make ways to, to make it healthy for my lifestyle to own a house. Um, but a lot of people don't have that opportunity and maybe they don't need that opportunity. They need other types of opportunities to, to have a good life. Right. Um, there's a quote that I want to, um, read to you that you said is that there is no landscape without a social meaning mm. behind it yeah i think that's a really powerful powerful yeah. statement and i can see that reflected a lot in your work yeah that awareness i think is something that helps me to reconsider not only your work but a lot of work being done by other other mm. photographers why do you think that's an important understanding to have particularly about your work i came to this through uh reading a lot of visual studies texts and human geography texts. And there was this, this movement in the 70s and a lot of writers in the 70s and 80s talking about how landscape is a reflection of culture, but there is a, a misconception that landscape is beautiful. It's, it's a thing to contemplate for its beauty. And they were addressing it in another way. They were, they were thinking, wait a minute. I mean, landscape isn't natural. <laughs> it's, it's built, you know. Everything in this world has been touched by the human being. And in that sense, if you take the time to read a landscape, you can see the decisions of how that landscape came to be. And in that sense, if you read it, you see culture, you see who, who, what are the dreams behind those decisions, right? Mm -hmm. there's, there's a beautiful quote uh, that says, man or the human being constructs uh, its, city, uh, its cities based on the dream of the city they want to live in. But in building that city, they don't understand that they are condemned to live in that city that they dreamt. So yes, you can dream of a city, but then you have to live in it. And sometimes what's not fair is that those dreams are not the dreams of everybody. They are the dreams of the white elite that decided of how they wanted a city to be. Mm -hmm. And everybody else is living in, a, in, a, in this dream of somebody who had no uh, relationship with you, uh, emotional 
cultural, philosophical. So there are many things to be read in, in, in landscape, especially about who we are as human beings. Yeah, because there was another thing I heard you say about for everything that's being created, especially with this you know, urbanization, mm -hmm. redevelopment, whatever you want to call it, that something is being destroyed. Exactly. And then I think I, I, I see that a lot in terms of Los Angeles, that mm. there's a, there's a, a rail system, a, basically a subway system that's been expanded over the last 20, 25 years here in Los okay. Angeles. And as the new, the new routes have been created, there's been a lot of new development, gentrification, mm. and that a lot of the communities that have been historically Latino or, yeah. or black um, are being changed and transformed. Yeah. Uh, in, in, in a way that reveals that sort of conflict that yeah. that contractors, the developers, you know, are creating a, a system that promises, yes. you know, progress. Um, it progress, promises progress. Yeah. But then at the same time, people who have lived in this communities, people who have been able to um, raise families to be able to afford exactly. um, living in these places are being displaced and whatever yeah. advantages that this development promises mm -hmm. uh, almost inevitably uh, prices them out yeah and yeah, then they're yeah. forced to to move to areas that don't have the benefit <laughs> of, of the very new things that they exactly that planted in their own in, in their in their communities and that's exactly. just, and it's an endless cycle because then It'll take 10 more years and then those same developers will go to those communities and say, hey, you don't have a subway system. Let's build a subway system. And again, they are going to be displaced and over and over again. These are cycles that a lot of, uh, of these urban theorists talk about. It's, it's been happening since uh, one, like one of the cases that is uh, very much studied is Paris, how Paris was destroyed to be built to build uh, these grand boulevards and renew the city. And it was an urban plan of displacement. It was all these places inside of Paris that were filled with brothels and bad living. And so mm -hmm. Hausman, this uh, uh, famous uh, developer or urbanizer, came up with the idea, let's destroy all of that and build the grand boulevards of Paris. And so those boulevards or Paris that look so beautiful caused a lot of hurt in families and people that were displaced. But we don't see them as that because now, you know, they, they were done in a hundred years ago and we don't see that this displacement has been going on forever and ever and ever. You know, David Harvey talks a lot about how urbanization is part of the capitalist uh, agenda. It's you cannot have capitalism without urbanization and suburbanization. It's like, it's part of how people make money and how things in a city work. You need to destroy something. There's money in destruction to build something. There's money in construction. Mm -hmm. And then you need to deem that something else is bad for the city. Is It gives a bad rep for the city. It looks bad in the city. So let's go in and destroy it. And those things happen all over the world. And the only thing here in Latin America that I, I sometimes see a little bit different than, uh, let's say, the U.S. or other uh, cities or countries in, the, in Europe is that there is a backlash of corruption around the, the destruction and building of infrastructure or suburbanization and that it's 
badly built, right? You know, mm. at least to some extent, there is some uh, regulation uh, that has to be met to build infrastructure in the US and in Europe and in other countries. Here, there is supposed to be some regulation, but because contracts go to uncles and your, you, you know, your, your, your deal, they build however they want with the cheapest materials and you end up with really bad infrastructure that needs to be uh, fixed every year, every two years. And it's an endless cycle of using uh, resources that could be used to, you know, better the schooling system, better the transport system, but they use up the, the resources from the government to, you know, fix bad built, badly yeah. built infrastructure in the country. And yeah, I, I did a book on that. It's called, um, a guide to infrastructure and corruption. And the texts talk about how um, I mean, the images are images of infrastructure in Guadal in the metro area of Monterrey, Guadalajara, and Mexico City. And then the texts are, you know, talking about how all building all these bridges and overpasses are the perfect excuse to have power over the urban space in, yeah. in, in the cities. Do, do, you, do you, who are you speaking to when you, you, you know, you, you put out this 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 work mm. and and are you seeing yourself as a as a photographic activist mm. i've been i've i've kind of been asked this before i've i've been an activist like i've i've been part of activist groups pro city activist groups uh uh i was part of in guadalajara uh, i would go to these meetings where they were trying to build an overpass uh, in this community and they were getting together. It was bicycle, uh, a group of bicycle people and neighbors and they were all fighting. And at the end, we won. The, the, the project was canceled. But at the end of that experience, I learned that, you know, I, I want to know about what you can do to protest or to comment about what's happening and I learned about that you do have a say in, in, in what, how the world is built around you. But in the end, I am a, a visual person. And what excites me the most is visualizing things, you know, making images of things and thinking visually. So I do have conversations and my images have been shown in many different contexts, in academia, in, in activist circles. Uh, but in the end, I think I'm best in that realm of creating images. Uh, but one thing that I do have clear is that I do have to have a commitment to know what I'm talking about, you know. Mm -hmm. And if that commitment takes me to go to go to meetings with a group that you know is protesting uh, the building of a bridge in their community, I'm going to go, you know, just to get a sense of that perspective. And that will inform my work. Maybe uh, I'm going to photograph something that I never thought to photograph because I have a new voice in that I can include in, in the work. I, I, I do that. I, I, I want to think of myself as a responsible artist, you know, that when I'm photographing, I know about, you know, and I can have mm -hmm. a conversation outside of the aesthetics of it. I can have a conversation about it. Yeah.
Well, my last question, which I ask each guest, is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our okay. listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Wow. Actually, I just got my batch of new books. I'm always buying books. <laughs> and the book that I most liked from those 15 books was uh, Knit Club by Carolyn Drake. I don't know if you know her. She's a, I know of her, yeah. A Magnum photographer. My God, what an amazing project. Beautiful book, beautifully printed. The idea of the project, it comes from within her, something that she lived, the connection she, that you see in the images that she created with the people uh, in the community. I mean, wow. I've, I've been a fan of her work. Uh, I have, this is my fourth book that I have of her. But this book was, you know, candy and, and, Ooh, and it's... yeah, it's really good. Knit, Knit Club, it was published by TWB Books or TBWB Books. Uh, so, yeah, definitely look into Carolyn's work. Uh, she's definitely a great photographer, great editor, uh, a, an amazing bookmaker. Definitely. That, that's my recommendation right there. Well, Alejandro, thank you. I really enjoyed having a chance to talk with you again. It was, it was a pleasure. Same here. Thank you for the invitation and uh, hope to meet you in the, in the future in person. Thanks to Alejandro for joining us. Find out more about Alejandro and his work by visiting his website at alejandrocartagena.com. And if you're a devoted listener and subscribe to the show, write us a review on whatever service you listen to podcasts. Those reviews have allowed us to grow. Thanks to Cha Timo for their five-star review. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and our mailing list on our YouTube channel. We offer critiques on images submitted by TCF listeners like you, while the mailing list keeps you updated with all TCF events, including workshops and more. Sign up today. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or make a one-time donation via PayPal. We also provide a series of ebooks on photography available for purchase on our website. It's my way of sharing my experience and knowledge and another way for you to support the show. And if you can't find every episode of the show on whatever service you listen to podcasts, download the Candor Frame app, which is available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candor Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.